0: and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue.
1: Tonight's scripture passage is 2 Samuel 3, verses 6 through 27. If you'd like to take a moment to turn in. Stand, if you're able for the reading of God's word. And again, tonight's scripture passage is 2 Samuel 3, 6 through 27. While there was a war between the house of Saul and the House of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizvah, the daughter of Aiana. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head to Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not also accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word, because he feared him. And Abner sent messages to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? And make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good. I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messages to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, "Give me, give me my wife Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines." And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paul- Paulita, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to baal When Abner said to him, Go return, and he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will bring my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to David at Hebron, and all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go, and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away and had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army was with him, that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away so that he has gone? You know that Abner was the son of Nair, came to deceive you, and to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you're doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside and said into the midst of the gate to, uh, to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashel, his brother. This is the word of God for the people
0: of God. All right, well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are looking at the life of David. And um, we are now entering into a new era in the story of the life of David, because uh, the old king, the first king of Israel named Saul, has died now. And so whenever there's a king that dies, there's a power vacuum, and uh, into that vacuum scrambles several people. Actually, four different people in this case come rushing into the power vacuum. And two of them are from the north, and two are from the south. So it's important to know that. The two in the north is, number one, the son of, Ab- the son of Saul, whose name was Ish-bosheth. And he would be the rightful heir. But he's very weak. And he has a general named Abner, who's always fought for Saul. And, uh, and Abner is very strong. And so you can see the two of them vying for power in the north. In the south, Judah, you have David and his very powerful general named Joab. And the four of them are all trying to, in a sense, gain the power uh, in the White House, if you will. And this chapter is about David seizing control in the capital of Hebron. Now, at this point, Jerusalem has not been established. So the capital is Hebron or Hebron. And David is going to unite the north and the south as one country, um, as the king of all of Israel. Which, in in a way, is a good thing. But in other ways, it's a very ugly, ugly chapter. The this this scheming here is, uh, is very evil. And you have uh, a sleeping with a concubine, uh, which is a very evil thing, a horrible thing, treatment of women. You have a marriage broken up in a terrible, terrible way where the husband has to come behind and beg for his wife back. You have these friends... Uh, that are deceiving one another, especially uh, David, when it, his deception of Joab. And then finally you have this murder. So it's a really horrible uh, passage in a way. It's like David is going over to the dark side here. It's like, um, I've got to be very careful about my references to Star Wars because there's certain critics out there. So I think I got this right. Anakin, in the third movie, I believe, goes over to the dark side, or he begins to go to the dark side when he can't be a Jedi Master. And I think that David... In a similar way here, because of the power that is luring him forward, is moving into, uh, in to- towards evil. And this is really the first time you see the corruption occurring in the character of David. It's very sad. And I was telling somebody about this Thursday, and, and she couldn't believe what I was saying. And she was like, that's, that's awful. I've always, I've, loved, I've always loved it. I love the Psalms and uh, what we've been looking at in the first Samuel. So... Uh, humble and uh, he's loving his enemies and all the things we talked about the last few weeks. Um, and uh, and I said, you know, I like him too. And all that stuff is true about him. But thankfully, the Bible is not a story um, of, you know, spiritual heroes. That's just not what the Bible's about. And so if you read it in a certain kind of pious, devout way, you could think that all these people are just these heroes of the faith. And that's mostly what the plot line is. But the plot line of the Bible is actually kind of the opposite of that. It's a chronicle of redeemed sinners like David. And actually that's our only hope is that into this uh, world of scheming and horrible actions like what we see right here, um, God's promise can still come. The promise of a great king can still come. And so I want to look at the darkness, first of all, of the scheming of this chapter and the scheming that happens in our lives that we're all part of. And then after that I want to look at the way that In the midst of that darkness, a great light is shining. Uh, In fact, uh, as Romans 12 says, right in the midst of the deepest darkness, the brightest light is shining and the light is coming. And that's what this is all about. The bleakness, first of all, of our scheming and the brilliance of God's hope because of that very thing. They're both in this passage. And I'm going to start by just telling the story again um, because it's hard to get the first time through. So let's start in the north. And Ish-bosheth in verse 7 says to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now the king, uh, all the ancient kings had harems. And look, God is just putting up with this stuff. It's not that he wants these things. So you've got to be careful when you read the Old Testament. It's just that God is putting up with these horrible systems that are in place. So these kings would have these harems of women that they they would go in and sleep with. And um, it's not like this has ended. This still happens today. And uh, the, the harem was a symbol of the king's power. And so who, whoever slept with the harem was like a power grab. And so what Abner is doing here is basically saying, I am the, the legitimate heir to Saul, not this weakling Ish-bosheth. And I would feel sorry for Ish-bosheth, except that he would have done the same thing if he had had the power. So Abner is sleeping with Saul's concubine, and Ish-bosheth gets uh, understandably annoyed at that. And that is the very thing that Abner wanted him to do. Uh, in fact, Abner feigns anger. Uh, he pretends to be really angry that Ish-bosheth has called them, as if Ish-bosheth wouldn't have called them on this. He's, he's doing that so that he can defect to David. It was part of the whole plan. Get Ish-bosheth mad at you and then legitimate your defection to the south. And so in verse 8, he says: Am I a dog's head of Judah? And I think what that means is, am I like a a puppet in the service of David? Are you accusing me of treason because I slept with your dad's concubines? He doesn't even really admit that he did it. He says, God, help me if I don't transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul to the house of David. And so now Abner is officially linked in with the south. And then Abner immediately texts David in verse 12, to whom does the land belong? And what he's saying is, uh, I'm the one who's really in charge of the north. Make your covenant with me, not Ishbosheth, and my hand will bring all Israel to you. And so what Abner is saying is, I can deliver you the entire north into your hands if you just make a pact with me. And David is very crafty in the way he fires back his response. And basically what he says is, like, like, I, I will agree to your covenant. But let's be very clear here about who is first and who is second. And who is the boss and who is the right hand man. And so he says uh, in verse 13, bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. And what he's saying there is um, Michal was my wife that your dad took from me. Saul stole David's wife from him to humiliate David and to strip all of David's power away. So uh, Michal was given to another man, and now David is saying, I need her back because she legitimates my rule in the north. If I have Michal back, then the people in the north will, will understand that I am the king, that I am actually the one who is married to the former king's daughter. So this makes me a legitimate king. So he's doing this to, uh, David is doing this to consolidate his power from the north. But then notice how he doesn't um, just communicate with Abner. Look at what he does in verse 14. He's very clever here. He communicates with Ishbosheth. So he kind of goes over Abner's head. And it says he sent messengers to Ishbosheth saying, Give me my wife, Michal. And he's saying to Ishbosheth and Abner both, Y'all are not the ones in control. I'm in control, and I will call the shots. And Abner understands that he's been outmaneuvered, he sees what David has done. He might have even predicted David would do this, but he uh, relents and he takes what he can get. And so he calls together all of the the bigwigs of Israel, all the power brokers. And in verse 17, he says, for some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you, which may not be true. Probably not true. But Abner is trying to kind of sweeten the pot and show them that uh, David's a good guy and get them to think they've always thought that he was a good guy. And then Abner says, uh, and now I want you to bring this about. I want you to, even though David is not blood lineage to Saul, I want you to make him the king. Even though you live among Saul's people, I want you to make him the king. And then David calls all these northern generals down uh, to Hebron, his capital. All the movers and shakers from the north. And he gives them this big black tie dinner. Verse 20, Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron and David made a feast them. And so he is essentially now, he has completely trumped Ishbosheth. He has also trumped Abner, and he's made Abner his right-hand man. But then where does that leave Joab? Because Joab was the general who had always fought for David in the south against Abner and Saul in the north. And uh, conveniently, Joab is missing when this treaty occurs. And when this black tie dinner has occurred. And it says in verse 22, just then, That's very important. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. And so David obviously has sent Joab out on a raid when he brought in Abner and all the generals from the north. And it was carefully timed that the deal was made when Joab could not object to it. And now, right when Joab is back, guess who's left? Uh, It says in verse 22, just then... David had sent Abner away from Hebron. So David's brilliant in the way he plays this thing. He, um, he makes sure that, that Abner's gone when Joab comes back, partly because he wants to provoke Joab. And this is the really insidious thing that he does, is he knows exactly what Joab is going to do. He's lived with Joab most of his adult life. He knows that Joab and his brothers are ruthless. And in many ways, they are, uh, they are violent and uh, unscrupulous people. And so he wants, uh, David wants Joab to be maximally enraged in verse 23. And so it was told Joab, Abner came to the king and he's gone in peace. In other words, he's made a treaty with him. And so, and so Joab hears his second hand, and you can, you can imagine how angry he is. He goes to the king in verse 24 and he says, What have you done? You know, I am the one that fought for you all those years. And Abner was our enemy, and I fought against him, and he killed my brother. And now you're bringing him in, and you're making a treaty with him, and you're and you're obviously clearly putting him above me. And uh, you know I don't know how David responded to that, but probably in a way that would just provoke more anger in Joab, because look at what happens next. And this is exactly what David wanted to have happen. Verse twenty-seven: Abner took Joab aside in the back alley of the city to speak with him privately. And those city gates were these giant structures, probably as big as this room, and they had many different little rooms. And uh, a lot of the the courtroom hearings were held in the city gate. um, And uh, into those little back rooms, he would have conferences. So this is like he's bringing him to a back alley. And it says that he he said he wanted to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach with his dagger and killed him, murdered him. Double-crossed him. And so, all of that is this uh, really uh, kind of terrifying level of uh, intrigue and murder. And it is not without its cost. Uh, the, the collateral damage is huge. Abner, is, of course, is killed. Who knows what happened to Ishbosheth, the concubines? And not just that, but look in verse 15. The author is intentionally putting this detail in there because he wants you to see this. He wants you to grieve this, or else he wouldn't have put this detail in there. This, this doesn't make any sense. Why would he even mention Paltiel unless he wanted you to grieve? So verse 15, it says, When Ish-bosheth sent and took Michal from her husband Paltiel, her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahorim's. And if you want to read a really moving account of this, read that book that I said that uh, you probably shouldn't read. It's called The Secret Cord*, and it's got certain parts that I don't recommend, but The Secret Cord* has a chapter on this that is really heartrending. And uh, Paul Teal leaves his children back at home and just, is just kind of lurching behind the caravan, uh, sobbing and clutching at her horse, until finally Abner takes his spear and just you know, rams him right in the stomach and makes him fall down. It's like, you better you go back right now, I'm going to kill you right here. And that little detail, uh, the narrator puts in there, just to say, uh, let's be very clear about this, David's taking the throne was not a pretty thing. And it's amazing the way that uh, this book criticizes David. I mean, how many... How many books of, uh, of presidents would a president commission a writer to write and would criticize the president heavily? Not, not many presidents would do that. And certainly not ancient kings. They never did that. Uh, the books were just these encomiums of praise to the king. And yet here, um, the author of 2 Samuel, we don't know who that is, but he's saying this is a murky situation. This is not pretty at all. When I grew up, uh, the big political scandal was Watergate. I bet a lot of you have never even heard of Watergate. It was a hotel in Washington, D.C. And President Nixon uh, was, was, going to be, uh, he was going to be impeached and, and, and lose his job, but he resigned. Um, it was really ugly. And All the President's Men was a movie about that that I watched over and over and over. I love those kind of political movies about intrigue. Um, today, of course, it's all about Trump and all of his scheming with Russia. You know, I don't really know a whole lot else about what's going on in the world because the news is completely focused on that. And so every day I see these things about that. Now it's the Ukraine and impeachment and um, we're appalled by the level of graft and corruption and intrigue that's going on here. And um, you know, back in 1532, There was a man who wrote a very famous book. Uh, If you know anything about political science, you've read this book. It's called The Prince by uh, Niccolo Machiavelli. And Machiavelli basically said, look, all politics is completely selfish. Uh, He coined this, well, he didn't coin the term, but a term has been coined after him called Realpolitik, which means uh, political realism, which is basically saying that there is no idealism in politics. There are no standards. There are no morals. It's simply who can get away with what. And that scheming is at the very heart of all politics. And so Machiavelli would not be surprised at all with what is happening today with Trump. Um, he would say, you know, forget all that. That's all, all politics is of course slimy, coercive, and self-seeking. And sometimes it seems like he's completely right. Um, sometimes the entire world feels Machiavellian. Not just politics, but you know, where you work, or the team that you're on, or the school that you go to. The principal of the school, the president of the school, the company you work for. Um, sometimes it feels like Google, Facebook, and Amazon like, own the entire uh, information of everyone in the world. I mean, just billions of bits of data on people. It's, it's frightening when sometimes you think about that. It can create anxiety. Or if you think about the way that Time Warner, Disney... Uh, Murdoch and Viacom control almost all the news outlets, and you just wonder how much are you being brainwashed in this massive system of, of scheming um, and corruption. And then uh, apparently, just a few banks—Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs—they own like well over half of the GDP of our country, almost. Half the wealth of the whole country is owned by these this small group of banks, and you you think about that, and just you realize that we're in the grip of these principalities and powers that are so huge, and we're just these little tiny pawns. And so the scheming that's happening in Hebron shouldn't really surprise you, because you're living that, um, you're living that, you're living in that world, a, a world where a CEO uh, lays off 350 workers and says they have to cut costs and then takes a, a pay raise. That happened here. Or a school accepts students whose parents bribe administrators or pay money to get their SAT scores up. All these things are, being, are coming out. Uh, coaches who are um, paying players to come to their school, paying uh, thousands and thousands of dollars to get these recruits to come to their schools. Or churches that cover up abuse, um, abuse of its members to protect the pastors from... Uh, being exposed at all, uh, that's happening all over the place. Happening very close to us. And when you think about yourself as a pawn in the hand of scheming powers, it creates a lot of anxiety. And um, there's a a term today that the APA has coined called echo anxiety. The American Psychological Association has created a term called echo anxiety. And it's, it's defined as a chronic fear of environmental doom. Watching the slow irrevocable impacts of climate change unfold, feeling lost, helpless, and frustrated due to the inability to change anything. And I was talking to somebody um, who said they have friends who are really wondering whether it's even a good idea to get married or to have children in a world where they feel like it's, it's coming close to ending, like it, it's that imminent, the danger, the ecological danger. There's a 16-year-old Swedish activist you've probably heard, Greta Thunberg, and she says uh, in this impassioned speech, adults keep saying we owe it to the young people to give them hope, but I don't want your hope. I want you to panic. And uh, she has that, uh, that anxiety, the, the venom, the anger that comes out of her speech just coming from the anxiety about what we have done to our planet. And so I, I mention all this just to say, you know, we live in this incredibly Machiavellian world. Whether it's, uh, it could just be your boss that you work for that's always scheming and finding out ways uh, to make things work for them. Or, um, like I said, in your school, it could be a teacher, it could be an administrator uh, who frustrates you to death. We always get mad about the politics of the situation. This is what we're talking about, the scheming. Or in a family, when an older brother or older sister... Schemes when the parents died to get more of the inheritance or a certain piece of furniture or something like that. I've seen families torn apart by things like that. All this scheming and intrigue. And that's the first point that David at Hebron does that very thing. And the Bible says, I see that and I notice that and I know that's in your life. I think that's good news. I think it's very good news that, we, that the Bible knows that. I, um, I heard a guy named Francis Buffard, uh He was interviewed by the New York Times. And he's a great novelist, and he wrote a book about uh, defending the faith. And, and they said, "Look, what about the uh, the atrocities of the church? You know, how do you how do you continue to believe this stuff when you see what has happened uh, all around the world today um, by these churches?" And he said, "Well, the thing that keeps me believing is the fact that the Bible says that's going to happen. The Bible says that that's what's true about the world. And it and the, and Christianity is best is at its best when it's very realistic." about the human condition and not too idealistic. And that's the first point here. The darkness of our scheming. But the amazing thing is that this same chapter that clearly lays out the case for human scheming and sin is at the same time the chapter in which you find the establishment of the throne of David at Hebron. And this is, this is probably the greatest theme of 1 and 2 Samuel. This is what it's culminating in is this throne that is established eventually in Jerusalem, uh, where a temple will be built and a, a, a king from David will come who will rule the world forever. And that is what is happening here in uh, 2 Samuel 3, essentially, is this incredible hope that from all this scheming, this Messiah would come and would take away everything like that from the world. That's point two, the light of hope. And so, uh, listen to what Abner tells Ishbosheth in verse 18. The Lord has promised David, <clears throat> by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from all their enemies. Now, Abner's telling that to Ishbosheth uh, just to get under his skin, not because he's necessarily a real believer in that promise. But still, there's the promise. And Abner knew it, and he assumed that Ishbosheth knew it. I don't know how he knew it. But somewhere way back in the past, in a little farmhouse in Jesse's living room, God had promised this little boy David that you will one day be the king. And that king will save his people by uniting the country and bringing peace. And so the promise apparently is going viral that this victorious king would come. And Ishbosheth knows that, the elders of Israel knows that, the way that Abner speaks to the elders of Israel, it's assuming they know that. And so the whole country is aware of this promise. Um, this meme out there that there's this king that is going to save our people. And so in the middle of all that trash, there is this promise that is coming forth. Uh, this life is coming forth. And, you know, you, you look at all that stuff about what's happening in the chapter and you just wonder how, how does God do that? How does he use such horrible circumstances to bring about such good things? And um, I thought about the term trash art. I don't know if you've ever heard of trash art, but it's actually a thing. You can look it up. And there are many artists out there in the world today that find trash and they turn it into art. And one of the great artists of the 20th century, uh, Joan Miro, walked the beaches of Mallorca looking for stuff that is washed up on the beach and, uh, and all these things that are ugly. And he, he picks them up, he cleans the beach, essentially picking up all this trash. And then he welds it together or glues it together. And then, if you know Moreau, it's all these bright primary colors, beautiful things. And so he, he created these pieces of art out of trash. There's a guy in England, uh, my favorite one, named Ptolemy Elrington. And I would encourage you to look at this guy's art. Uh, Ptolemy Elrington. And what he does, he goes around the highways of England. And he finds all these hubcaps. And pieces of cars, all this chrome, and then he takes the chrome and he uh, he brings it together, I guess by welding it and then painting it, and uh, he makes these amazing animals. There's these huge wolves and warthogs and fish and eagles, and um, you know I say that just to say that God God takes trash, literally trash, and he fashions out of that beautiful things, amazing things. If you, uh, if you read church history, you see this. Tim Keller, the great pastor, said... Uh, the thing that makes him doubt the most... An interviewer asked him, what makes you doubt? You know, what, when do you doubt Christianity is true the most? And he said, sadly, it's when I read church history. Because I, I read about people like uh, St. Augustine. You know, one of my heroes. A lot of, a lot of you know who he is. Amazing man. Wrote The Confessions, one of the greatest books ever written. And yet... You read about him, and you realize he—he he, he forced people into the church uh, physically through through coercion and violence. He forced he forced heretics back into the Catholic Church. Not a good thing. And then you read about uh, one of my favorite writers, Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, just an amazing spiritual uh, leader in the Middle Ages. Well, he called for the Crusades. Um, and then you've got uh, Luther, started the Reformation. Had some of the greatest insights ever into the the nature of uh, the salvation of sinful people, and yet, at the end of his life, he wrote all these incredibly racist things about Jewish people that some people think led somewhat to the Holocaust. You got John Calvin, my hero, Presbyterian, the the father of Presbyterianism, and uh, it turns out that that he had a guy come to Geneva looking for solace and rescue from the Catholic Church, and Calvin agreed uh, to his being burned at the stake. And to being killed. And, uh, and then there's Jonathan Edwards, the American uh, great spiritual writer. Some has called him the greatest in mind in America's ever produced. And you find out he owns slaves. So you've got all these people, and I read about that and I said, These, these are my heroes, Lord. Like, why? Why are they like that? Uh, how can you use sinners like that to grow your church? And I think God responds, what else do I have to work with? Like, what other materials are out there for me to work with except for that? And and that's true of you, too. And so, if you've ever heard the expression, uh, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, you might have heard that. If you've heard sermons in the South, you've probably heard that. You can say it with a Southern accent, it makes it more powerful. But um, you should really take the word can out of that. It's not so much that God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Every straight line he's ever drawn has been with a crooked stick. Um, and so if you think that you have screwed up your life with all your scheming, God basically is saying that you really can't do that. Um, because I, all I use are crooked people. Schemers like David and like you. And if you think that others have screwed up your life through their scheming, Uh, God would say, uh, I create beauty out of that pain. And I think that a lot of our favorite, one of of the songs we all love in here, uh, that we sing a lot, is called Beautiful Things. Um, One of my favorite songs. And um, it says, uh, all this pain, I wonder if I'll ever find my way. I wonder if my life can really change at all. And then you get to the chorus, and it says, but you make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of the dust. You make beautiful things out of us. It's almost a song about trash art, essentially. That God takes all this pain, all this bewilderment, and uh, confusion, and there's this dazzling hope in the middle of that, where God is creating beauty out of disorder. And uh, the the way this passage kind of Moves towards promise is, is incredible because uh, we know that in 2 Samuel 7, if, if you are aware of the whole arc, the narrative arc of the book, where you're going with this book, 2 Samuel 7, when you study the Old Testament in seminary, that's one of the great high points of, of Old Testament history. That's kind of one of those major places in the Old Testament that you say, if, if there are six chapters in the Old Testament where important things happen, that would be one of those six. 2 Samuel 7. Later in David's life, the shining hope of the Old Testament, the Messianic promise, God says to David, when you die, I will raise up a certain offspring from your lineage. And I will establish that particular offspring's kingdom. And he will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that, of course, is the Messiah that one who would come from the house of David. And it's, it's the greatest promise of the entire Old Testament that, uh, that God would um, reign from his throne in Jerusalem over the whole world. and He would bring peace across uh, the entire world. Now imagine you're a Democrat. Um, I know some of you are Democrats, but uh, if you're not a Democrat, imagine you're a Democrat. Um, and um, imagine that Biden wins the election. And you're so excited. Um, And and not only that, he serves all the way till 2028, so he wins again. And now he's he's actually 82 years old at that point. And so, then uh, Pete Buttigieg wins the next election, and he wins uh, also two terms. So now we're up to 2036. And uh, at that point, he'd be 52, actually. And then after Buttigieg goes out, you have Tulsi Gabbard, and then she wins the next, also, two elections. So now we're into 2042, um, 44, and she is now 52 years old. And then, uh, and then AOC wins the next one. And so the Democrats reign from basically a uh, couple years till the year 2050. Now, if you're a Democrat, that to you is like America has will become this gorgeous place um, where uh, it's prosperous and generous and tolerant. And uh, the the whole world is blessed because of the way that America has changed. And so peace spreads out somewhat into the world. And I would say that at one point in my life, I actually thought that way. That that if that were to happen, that would be about the best thing that could happen. I'm not not saying it wouldn't be good. I'm not saying it's not important at all. But I I would say that uh, that could help you to imagine the way an Israelite would think about this promised Messiah coming. You know, if that's if, or if you're a Republican, uh, I don't know what the analogy is, actually, but something like that, you know, for t- till 2050, um, there would be Republican presidents that you loved in place and would bring about all this prosperity. And I'm saying that to you to give you a, a sense of what it would be like for an Israelite. And, and we're not talking about like 50 years. This would be from thousand B.C. till today and then beyond that there would be a king. And we're not talking about a president. Uh, We're not talking about a series of presidents, and it's not a scheming person, it's not a politician. This is a king without any scheming at all, not a deceitful bone in his body, completely sincere and vulnerable and transparent, a king ruling in that manner. uh, That is an unbelievable prospect, and that's what this passage ultimately gets to. It's really not about David primarily, it's about the kings that would come from David. And this, this passage is like that launch pad from which that messianic promise takes off. And the way that the king eventually takes the throne, the final messiah, is another, uh, another kind of uh, tale of darkness and scheming. Um, one of the, Maybe the darkest of the Bible. The Bible really kind of sits there for many chapters, just mulling over this event that occurred. which It's the greatest mistrial of all time. The, um, the trial of Jesus. And if you read it, if you just read the trial of Jesus, you re- it's just, it's a travesty of justice. It's, it's, um, it's appalling. It's chaotic. There was a uh, famous case in Winston-Salem in 1984 of a man named Daryl Hunt who was sentenced to life in prison because he was convicted of murder. He was African-American. And in 1994, 10 years into his sentence, DNA tests proved, proved that he was innocent. And then someone confessed to doing the thing. And he was not let out till um, 10 years after that. And so he spent 20 years in prison. Um, and eventually he killed himself from depression when he left out, uh, let out of prison. And uh, when you read about, like, there's something about a mistrial and, and a, an injustice that just makes you just kind of want to give up and, and think it's all hopeless. And I think that um, that kind of injustice, God knows, just crushes us. And that's why I think that in the middle of the absolutely greatest mistrial of all time, where this perfect human has come to the earth uh, to love people and to heal people and bless people, and uh, witnesses are bribed, uh, his words are twisted, he's, he's beaten during the proceedings, he's tortured and executed while the judge is saying this man is innocent of all crime and the mob is calling out for him to be crucified, you know, all of that, it seems like it's completely hopeless and dark and despairing. And yet, right there, uh, God says, I will bring justice forever out of that mistrial." Way beyond Hebron, uh, we have this travesty of justice in Jerusalem. And yet, God says in Acts 2.23, This Jesus who you have crucified is by the hands of, of lawlessness. Uh, that happened according to the definite plan of God who raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. And so what I'm saying to you is that resurrection life and uh, order and, and harmony and peace can come out of anything that you're going through. It's, it's not as bad as what it was back then. If God can do that in Hebron and in Jerusalem, he can do that in your life. And I think this table is the, uh, is the ultimate uh, depiction of God.